An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, our special guest is Jan Van Eck, Chief Executive Officer, President and Owner of the eponymously named Van Eck, an investment management firm with some $85 billion in assets under management across the globe. Let me start with a disclosure. I serve as an independent board member of the U.S. and European mutual funds for which this firm serves as an investment advisor. So I've had a close-up view of Jan over the years. I can tell you that Jan is singular in a number of ways. First, he runs a mid-sized, privately-owned investment management firm successfully. That is unusual in this highly regulated business, which has seen consolidation over the years. Many of Jan's former competitors have merged, failed, or were purchased out of existence. Second, he's managed to succeed by taking risks, considered risks certainly, but sometimes big ones, rather than by trying to blend in. Whether that risk was expanding globally or being early in focusing on exchange-traded funds, or today, exploring how investors should view cryptocurrency and the entire distributed finance ecosystem. Third, while risk-taking focuses on the future, Jan does so with a huge respect for the past. He created a history of finance course for his employees, even going so far as to appear in costume as Alexander Hamilton. Jan describes himself as an innovator, entrepreneur, and a podcast enthusiast. Hopefully, this one won't disappoint him. Welcome, Jan. Thanks, Jan. So what's your origin story? I mean, in some ways, you were born into this role, but you also spent some time rebelling against that fate. Is it true that your grandfather was a baron? I mean, how did you become the person you are? Uh, well, I would say very influenced by my, my parents, uh, first and foremost, but I don't know if I would call it rebellion. I wouldn't call it rebellion. I would say that obviously growing up, uh, when the, especially when the business was super small and I remember it when there were like three or four people in the firm, right. That, you know, my, my father and mother would talk about the company at the dinner table. So I, I lived through it, but my father didn't do what his father had done. And he always said, listen, you have to be happy in life because that's what he had done, right. He found something that he really enjoyed and pursued it. So. Uh, I really don't think there necessarily was a magnetic pull towards the firm, although my wife disagrees. The things, you know, that, that are interesting, I think maybe to listeners is just how many things I tried uh, before deciding to rejoin the firm. My internships include a stint at the Metro desk of the Washington Post. My first job was at the Brookings Institution, the think tank. I worked on a political campaign for six months full time. I worked at a corporate law firm doing M&A deals for a summer. I also worked at a prosecutor's office for a summer, and I did an internship at a shareholder rights group. 
there was no method to that madness. I was just trying a lot of different things that intrigued me. And so that's kind of how I ended up being uh, where I am. Uh, the thing about my grandfather, who was a Dutch lawyer, came to the United States on the West Coast originally. He, he was titularly a baron, uh, but that's just carried through in, in Dutch tradition. But what's interesting to me is he was a, a businessman, a lawyer turned businessman for Shell Oil and basically ended up running it for a period of time during World War II. But European businessmen are, or CEOs are not paid what U.S. CEOs are paid. So even though uh, he was a role model and never knew him, I knew of his successes in business, he didn't have that huge uh, family office <laughs> at the end of the rainbow. But definitely, I grew up, uh, you know, with my dad mowing the lawn, and I would say, um, you know, until gold took off, a sort of middle-class upbringing. So is, is Baron an inheritable title? Should we be calling you your, your royal something or I'm not answering that question. <laughs> so you and your brother, Derek inherited the firm from your father, John. And every day when you walk in, it's got the Van Eck name on the door. That's got to affect how you feel and how you run the firm with every communication, everything the firm puts out has your name on it. How does that affect how you run the place? I think I'm being honest. It really, it really doesn't. The, the values that, you know, my father passed on or, you know, set by example is that the world is changing a lot and you have to be able to take risks. And, you know, there's a lot of business literature about founders and how founders are willing to take those risks and pivot firms. And if you look at firms that have been around a hundred years, you really have to change with the times because if you're not reinventing yourself you really go out of existence. You know, how many top S&P companies were the top S&P companies 10 years ago, right? That really infects my thinking, John, more on a day-to-day -day basis than the brand. You know, I, I like to think I'm more of a low-key person, so I didn't love having uh, the name, my last name on the name of the firm. And it's changed a lot in the last three or four years when we you know, it was always known in the industry. We were a small player, but then um, when we rebranded our ETFs and then seeing, you know, SMH or GDX and seeing the brand on CNBC all the time during COVID, I think that's changed. I don't know how it's going to change me, but the, definitely the brand of the firm has grown a lot in the last three years. Let me ask you about your late brother, Derek. As I said, you and he inherited the firm together. He died at age 46 in 2010 from a neurologic disease and he and you had worked together every day. Before we get into it, just do us a favor and tell our listeners briefly about Derek. Sure. Um, well, first of all, we were, uh, Irish twins. He was born less than a year, uh, less than 12 months, uh, after I was born. So uh, having twins myself, I think we were twins basically. So close to siblings, but even closer because of that. And, and we didn't have any other siblings. So, um, I, I think that there is this kind of relationship where you don't even know, need to articulate everything that you kind of, you're in the other person's head. I went away for, for high school, but we both, uh, overlapped at Williams, but we did very different things. I think we're very different kind of personalities in a way he was, um, very serious. And, um, you know, when we ended up both deciding to, to join the family company, he was also very cooperative and sort of said, listen, who's doing what? And he 
had gotten an MBA at Kellogg and had worked on Wall Street for uh, First Boston. And uh, he he really wanted to be a portfolio manager. He was a very serious person in that sense. But I, I think that we were trained to be kind of polite people as well. And I still get people, I mean, every year, oh, I miss Derek. Like people from outside, like clients, uh, will say, oh, I miss Derek. I'm like, you miss Derek. <laughs> um, you know, I probably think about him every day. So, um, you know, I, I thought that would go away over time, but, you know, it didn't. So I, I kind of mixed my my reaction there with uh, with his background. But he, you know, he lived in New York City, uh, has, has two surviving children, um, and a widow, and you know we stay in touch with them, and you know that's that's the background on Derek. I, I will tell you, my impression is that Derek was both a gentleman and a really good chief investment officer. I also know a little bit of what it's like. My sister died when I was forty-two, and while we were in totally different fields and didn't work together, I know I miss her every day. And I often wish I could just consult with her, uh, in my case about my life and in your case, you were so working with Derek. What business decisions do you wish you'd been able to ask Derek about where just that, that, that trusted, um, you know, as you said, almost mind meld of almost twins could have, uh, given you more insight or perhaps accelerated a decision. I just would love his feedback on you know, a lot of the macro trends that we see in the world, the, the ones we got very involved in emerging markets because of the rise of China. What would he think about what's happening now with respect to China? Um, obviously, are we re-entering this, you know, 1970s style inflationary era? Just those difficult to answer questions as things are changing super fast at the time, you can't, you need that kind of perspective. So that, that would have been great. Um, I would say that I have tried to offset that. I have really great um, advisors at the firm and and people like yourselves that uh, you know are in, are invaluable in terms of trying to get input because you need to listen all the time <laughs> when you're talking. Uh, you, you can't listen, right? So uh, that's why um, you know I, I really value tough internal critics. Uh, I think it's much rather to say this is what you're doing wrong. Um, then, you know, great job. And so luckily I have that, uh, within the firm and people that care as much about the firm as, um, as I do. So aside from internal critics, how about out, outside advisors? I mean, it's rare to have a family firm in this business that survived general a generational succession. And maybe there should be a support group out there for the fear of you that exists. I mean, do you talk to your peers? I mean, the, the only one I can really think of is like Abby Johnson at Fidelity. Right. I mean, who do you talk to for advice outside the firm? I learned a lot from other family businesses. There are a lot of family businesses out there, John. And I think we are, we were blessed, um, you know, kind of by two things. Number one is there was a big age gap. Uh, my father married late in life. So when, when Derek and I were in our thirties, he was ready to retire. And what I find is a lot of generational conflict at family firms between people that have to overlap. You know, um, I remember we were on a wine trip in Tuscany and they were talking about how paternalistic, uh, the, the family structure was and how, you know, there was a grandfather, father, and the son, um, even the son was, you know, in the twenties 
it wasn't it wasn't his father who was running the operation. It was still the grandfather. So I mean, you know that that conflict we that generational conflict we just didn't didn't have. Um, so I think that's that's really important for all kinds of family businesses. Let's talk about history because you you seem to care a lot about history, not just family history, but financial history. And as I mentioned, you once actually dressed up as Alexander Hamilton to impress the importance of that financial history of the staff. It was a bit gimmicky, but it does highlight just how much you value the historical perspective. Your father also had a historian's approach to investing. How does that come into play in the day-to-day management of your firm, or, or perhaps it's not the day-to-day management, but the strategic management of your firm? Yeah, I mean, the asset classes that we focus, focus on are really a result of, of that kind of bigger picture perspective. Uh, and, and I like to tell the story about how my father, when he was in his forties with two little kids and, a and a firm that wasn't paying him a real market salary, decided to get a PhD at night at NYU and studied under a Austrian economist and, um, sold almost all his portfolio and bought gold mining shares in 1968. I mean, really that's almost a crazy move, right? Cause gold had been pegged to the dollar for the, basically the entirety of us history. So can you imagine making that bet, you know, coming home, honey, how was work? Well, gold still pegged to the dollar, you know, three years later, that just shows you the high conviction he had that there was going to be a disruptive change, um, which, which happens with pegs, but still, um, that, that was, that was a big risk. So to answer your question about history, uh, first of all, I'd say two things as at a higher level, John, right now, one is a very much a functional view of history. In the sense of, I really care more about the future and investors, the investment business is all about the future where history can help is identify the different scenarios of outcomes, whether it be geopolitical or financial, uh, you obviously need to know the history of financial crises. We might be going through one right now, a couple of, uh, financial firms in the crypto space are, are running into liquidity problems. Uh, we, we lived through the global financial crisis where, you know, investment banks were, were seizing up. So you need that as well to risk manage a financial firm. Um, but you know, that, so that's, that's really most of it. Um, I'll, I'll tell you one thing I've been talking with a friend about recently as well, though, which is, uh, the project of being an American. Um, and for most, a lot of our history, Americans, and we had a lot of differences between us, but felt proud, uh, that we had a democracy relative to, you know, what was going on in Europe and, um, and, and just we're, we're proud of that. And then I think we were also proud, you know, as we became more powerful of our role in the world, I think that's really, really gone away in a way over the last 50 years where there's really like death fights, I will say, between people in politics that, that where they just don't even believe in the fundamental legitimacy maybe of the project of America. And so um, anyway, that's one of the things that I want to talk about uh, this year as I do, you know, with my interns, we have the 16 unit class in history is to explore that a little bit more, which is is capitalism a good thing? I'm on the advisory board of a business school where they took a poll, a poll of the business students and 65% of, of them preferred socialism to capitalism. 
I'm like, what, what is, what, what's going on with that? So that's a separate issue, but I think within the historical context, uh, this issue of citizenship is uh, important. And listen, I look at your podcast as a, as a giving back, right? It's a great exploration of a lot of different people that you've had on your podcast. And it's a, it's contributing to society and that's part of America, but I don't think we celebrate anything anymore. One of those places that you explored prior to going to Manette, Brookings, is doing a study of whether or not a drift towards autocracy and away from democracy is a threat to the capital markets. And we have explored that on this podcast, particularly the, the, the session with Norm Eisen. But you, you mentioned an interesting question, which is things are always changing. So how do you distinguish those sort of discontinuous regime changes from normal day-to-day change? How do you recognize which ones might call for a totally new approach to business investing or global politics? Any big change, there's, uh, there's early signals, right? There's information out there. There might be people better situated, like Mark Zuckerberg may be better situated to see trends on the internet, but like ETFs, we started our ETF business in 2006. And as someone was pointing out, we actually started on our first application in 2003. It took us many years to get approval for our first ETF, uh, which, you, which you needed back then. But, but still, it was kind of clear that, wow, ETFs were like a better format. It's just how quickly you jump on it. So anyway, my, my, the first part of my answer, John, is the information is out there. Secondly, I think what's really important is to go out and listen. I mean, I learned about, uh, you know, kind of China's changes, structural changes towards, towards business when I was traveling in Hong Kong. It was never in the newspapers. I mean, literally China was never in the New York Times or maybe once or twice a year. So traveling and having an open mind is super important. And you can do that. Um, by going to conferences or, or lots of different ways of there's so much information on the internet. And then I think the third key is sort of, um, what Howard Lindzen talks about, which is, you know, rely on filterers, right? There, there are people that, uh, whether investment people or people in different specializations that are doing that filtering for you. So if I think if you combine all those things, you know, just looking at all the signals that are out there, so that maybe is noise in a way, um, but then, uh, you know, using filters to, to adjust for that. One of the things that you've filtered in recently is, is another potential disruptive change, which is cryptocurrencies, distributed finance, distributed ledger technology, et cetera. I know that's been a personal focus of yours for years now, and the travails of Levenic firm in trying to start investment products through the SEC um, has made newspapers and CNBC. I have to say for many of us, crypto brings to mind Arthur C. Clarke's famous observation that, quote, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, end quote. So what is it about crypto that interests you? And how do we distinguish between the hucksters trying to sell us the magic and the technology that promises efficiency? I would say two things. Number one is because we were a gold firm and that was one of our large areas, I had to worry as the CEO, was Bitcoin going to disrupt gold? So that wasn't an optional question to answer. It was something I had to answer. 
And in 2017, early 2017, again, it had been on the radar, the proverbial radar. And in this case, the filterer was my oldest son, Nick. Um, but, but, you know, did, did the deep dive, um, and, and came up with the conclusion that yes, some investors will like Bitcoin as a complement or alternative to gold as a, you know, non-government oriented store of value. So that was in, and you know, it's, it's way up, it's, it's, it's going down these days, but it's way up from then. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is the blockchain technology. Uh, it's a new type of database. And I, I, I'll say my favorite factoid is the value that was transacted on the Ethereum blockchain last year exceeded three and a half trillion dollars. So it, it's not a gimmick. Like this is something that people are using as a functional tool. Now, my, my favorite recent, recent question um, of, of groups is, uh, does anyone know what a relational database is? Well, a relational database is basically just a much, well, we all use databases to store all information. And about 50 years ago, a relational database was just a more flexible way of storing data. That's it. So it just made it easier for the IT people. Does anyone really care? I'm not sure they do. Does it matter if you know what a relational database is? I don't, I don't know. Um, not if you're a consumer. And so to that end, I think sort of the evolution of blockchain may, it may be follow a similar path, meaning great technology incorporated into goods and services that we already consume, but it might not be a thing in itself. I think we just have to kind of see, but in the financial industry, which I work in, I think it'll have a lot of structural applications. And I think there's still a 50, 50 chance that these crypto firms, most of which you've never heard of will be the new wall street firms because they're operating on a faster, more efficient, actually better risk managed technology base. Is it a better risk managed technology? Basically, I can, I can buy faster and more efficient. Why do you say a better risk managed technology base? I mean, why was one of the first crypto derivatives exchanges allowed to offer a hundred times leverage? Because they had an instantaneous, um, you know, collateral seizure program and it didn't, it didn't go, you know, play golf on, on Fridays or go to sleep on the evenings or weekends. Um, and nor, you know, it was right there. You couldn't pretend to have that collateral available, like, like this hedge fund that blew up recently at three different banks, right? It's, it's right out there. Someone told me this morning about how we know how one of these big, uh, crypto financial firms has a whole bunch of, of Bitcoin that it will have to sell if the price goes down to 22.5 or something like that. It's on the blockchain. And that level of transparency is, is kind of not what Wall Street is known for. And the lack of transparency often has caused, uh, obviously liquidity problems have caused a lot of blowups on Wall Street. So now can you get greater capital efficiency and leverage out of that system? Because a lot of times the it's over collateralized because of the volatility of Bitcoin. I, I don't know yet, John. To change subjects a little bit. Uh, to go from serious to fun. Um, one of the fun things that you like to do for the firm is create a themed holiday gift every year. So for instance, Vanek has gifted ties, scarves, tote bags, and featured Hamilton, Bitcoin, 
former Federal Reserve Chair Bernanke in helicopter money. How did that tradition start? And am I correct that these VanEck ties have become so popular that there's action in counterfeiting? Not quite counterfeiting, but um, well, we just started because I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, we would always come up with, well, what's the holiday gift? This used to be a much bigger thing on Wall Street than, than it is today. Um, and maybe COVID has put a permanent into any of that gifting, but uh, we just thought it would be more fun to do something different than hand out chocolate. All great creative ideas on, on firms come from the trading desk. When jokes used to go around by email like that, they, they had the best jokes and memes. Can't do that anymore. But uh, so, uh, I, you know, our head of trading, Charlie Cameron, sort of start, started this. And uh, yeah, we've had some, some big hits. They did trade on eBay. So that was where the market is. We had a secondhand market for some of these ties. And the modern version that we just came out with, and maybe this is a softball question for me, um, is that we came out with our own NFT. So we are still um, doing the tie tradition, but we came out with, a, with an NFT over the last month with a kind of Hamilton type of avatar. So that is just an entirely different uh, community we had, uh, we, we, you know, we had a thousand NFTs made available, but 50,000 signups in, in our Vanica NFT community. So, uh, we'll see how that goes. And NFT being a non-fungible token, part of the distributed finance world that points to a piece of code that says you, you own something you're combining the, uh, holiday tie with the crypto world here. What's been your favorite of the, uh, creative prisons? Oh, I would say helicopter Ben, um, you know, where, where Ben Bernanke said I'd throw money out of, uh, helicopters if I had to, to get the economy going. And so we did a great, uh, you know, kind of high version of that. Um, and then, you know, one that kind of resonates is, uh, the, the Riminby sort of, um, this question mark of. Is there capital controls or open exchangeability of the renminbi? So you see the renminbi flying over the Great Wall of China. I think that's kind of uh, one that has staying power. Um, so those are, I guess, probably my two favorites. What's exciting you right now? What are you passionate about? I'm just starting my history class again for the third year with my intern. So the 16 units and this issue of lacing in kind of the history of how our financial markets were established and how they work, uh, that, that structural component laced in with this question of, of citizenship is, is really intriguing me because I really, I really think it's important. This question of, listen, we've had a lot, even, you know, Hamilton and Jefferson hated each other, right? So it's not like there hasn't been strife and stress before, uh, but Examining that question, I think will be, will be interesting this summer. Okay. Let's finish with some uh, short questions and answers. How do you relax? John, you know me, I'm always relaxed. I, 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 I honestly, I mean, that sounds sort of smug, but, um, I honestly think that just otherwise the financial markets, there's too much stress in life, right? The, the ability to be calm, I think is, is, is really super important. So I, I don't find that doing, you know, I have non-work activities. I play tennis, I run, I do, I love to travel, but, um, you know, I, 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 I have a lot of fun at work. So uh, coming to work sometimes relaxes me. 
I ask that question to a lot of people and people go, I don't relax. And I, and I have to tell you, I've done some, um, research on traders and, um, how they trade and when they're trying particularly to make intertemporal decisions between now versus later and what an acceptable later payoff will be. And when you look at functional MRIs of their brain, there is two different zones that light up. One is the limbic, which is an ancient. So I think of it as almost fight or flight emotional. And one is the prefrontal cortex, which is more recent in evolution and supposedly uh, um, affiliated more with rational thought. And as things get more frantic, they make worse decisions because they rely on the limbic. So you're probably making good decisions by being relaxed. And whenever I have someone who says to me, I never relax. I just think, gee, I wonder what decisions they make in the midst of uh, <laughs> craziness. Um, what music do you listen to? I love all music. It was a, it was a DJ in college. Just so I could explore and play different kinds of music for, you know, at least 15 years. I've really gotten into, I listened to electronic music, electronic dance music. That's what I, that's my go-to. You mentioned you were on a wine trip. What's your favorite wine? Well, I mean, there's some, some memorable ones, uh, you know, 82 Cheval Blanc, uh, probably got me into wine more than anything. And one of the Unicos when they've been having it together, I don't really have a favorite wine type though. I think, um, you know, I love exploring different regions and you know, that's, there's no, there's no end to that for me. You mentioned two very expensive wines. What's your favorite cheap wine? I had a Dolcetto at a lunch in, in Piedmont, um, on a sunny day with friends and, uh, what's that a $12 bottle of wine. So that, that, that's probably my favorite. What are you reading right now? I have a lot of books on the reading list, but, um, the, the one I'm looking forward to eventually getting is the, I think, I don't know if you mentioned on your podcast, the rise and fall of the city of money about Edinburgh. But in the meantime, um, I'm hashing through a lot of different books on, you know, American history and just making sure I'm current on, on that. Last question. If you could magically speak into everyone in the world's ear, what would you tell them? The ultimate emotion that, that, that I feel is just gratitude, gratitude for all the wonderful things that I have in my life. And I think I would suggest other people look look at the glass half full aspects of their life. I think it's just a way better, uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's just a, a, a special way of, of thinking, um, to me. Good advice. You've been listening to outside in with John Lukumnik and our special guest, Jan Van Eck. Jan certainly brings a historical and unique perspective and a calmness to running what is a a business in a pressure-packed industry. We think about, you know, all those movie scenes of frantic trading discs and instead um, you listen to someone in charge of a firm who's saying, let's be calm and have gratitude. So probably good advice. Thank you, Jan. Oh, John, thank you. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John McCormick, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor O'Higgisa, John Lukumnik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, 
leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.